So this is the first time we've actually have a sponsor this week. That is the great guys at Wizards Foundry. You met one of them last week, John Lau. Uh, they are sponsoring us this week, and you can get 10% off of the Grimoire box. That's the cool wizard box, deck box for your all your decks. You get to show up at tournaments and look pretty awesome. Um, I have one. They're pretty pretty sweet. And you guys can get it for 10% off. If you use the code MMCAST, M-M-C-A-S-T, on their website, you'll get 10% off, and they'll show us some love. So please do that. Please check them out. And we will see you guys at the end of the cast. Bye. Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to Masters of Modern. I'm your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's going on, everybody? And today we have the wonderful Tom LaPelli. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. So for all of you guys that don't know, uh, Tom used to work at Wizards of the Coast. Why don't you tell everyone what you kind of did? Life history, story. Yeah. Just tell them what you did. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just go with what I did. I worked at Wizards of the Coast for six and a half years. For a while, I wrote the latest developments column, which is where a lot of people know me from. But I was the lead developer for, I'll say, three and a half sets. I led Magic 2012, Dark Ascension, Born of the Gods, and the first half of development of Dragons of Tarkir, which was picked up and finished off by Dave Humphreys. I also led the development of Master's Edition 3, Master's Edition 4. Those were two Magic Online exclusive sets that were hilarious if you were around for them. There were there was Elephant Tribal in at least one of them. There was Elephant Tribal in one of those. Uh, <laughs> in in Master's Edi- Edition 3, what's the 5-7 mana guy for 7 in this blue-black? Uh, I don't know. The, the LSV just went, went nuts about how good uh, this... 5-7 guy that taps for what mana is. And he was actually awesome. That format was weird. Uh, you could you could attack horsemanship guys past dragons if you wanted to in that format. Yeah, that was weird. I was also the lead developer of Arch Enemy as well as Master... No, not Masters. Modern Masters 2, yeah, we're, we're 2015. Masters You're Masters of Modern. You were I, I was, in both those sets. I was the lead... I was... Um, Eric Lauer was the lead developer of Modern Masters 1. He was my lead designer for Modern Masters 2015 from this year, and I was the lead developer on that project. Wow, I did not know that. That's incredibly relevant and exciting. <laughs> yes, it is. That, that was one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. Having arguably one of the smartest human beings on Earth as a lead designer on your project is a privilege. Working Eric, with Eric's incredible. He's a pretty famous uh, pretty famous name around there, right? He, he had a pretty big part in Innistrad, right? Yeah, he was the lead developer of Innistrad. He basically just makes... He is why Magic is so awesome right now. He is incredibly smart, and we are... He introduced a lot of those, like, metrics that now is kind of the way you build everything. Yeah, he's all about metrics and quality control and consistency, and he's put together a lot of processes that make what comes out of that office extremely consistent over time. I think he's why Standard is so fun right now. I'm having a a ton of fun playing Standard out here, and... I've come to the conclusion in some ways that the only cards I want to play with are ones that went through him, because he's <laughs> awesome, but that's just where I am now. And there is a future project that has yet to be announced that is the last thing I will have worked on when it comes out. 
but that'll wow. be a little while. Well, that's uh, cryptic and exciting. <laughs> it's also uh, as much as I can say. <laughs> so we'll be we'll we'll definitely pr- poke you and prod you as far as we possibly can. You just tell us when. <laughs> uh, all right, when? please stop now. <laughs> Great. Uh, so we we have some super awesome, interesting questions to ask you because you're obviously a wealth of knowledge on the magic, the magic game, and all the various formats, especially modern. But before we do that, we want to just remind everybody to. Follow us on Twitter. Yep. Rate us on iTunes. Yep. Uh, all of the social media things. That... We're at the FMCast. Also, we say this every week, but we are recording this live, which is lies. <laughs> but we will respond to your tweets if you are tweeting at us while you're listening and try and, you know, play off of what you're saying. And, yeah. And be entertaining. At all hours of the day, 24 hours a day. As yep. you all know, I have a special set of notifications on my phone. If you mention Grand Architect or Spellskite, it'll wake me up. <laughs> I'll respond immediately. Uh, but uh, yeah, rate us and, and five stars, four stars, nothing below three, please. We'll rate you yeah, back like an Uber mean. driver. And um, <laughs> we, yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. So so keep in touch with us and, and follow us and, and let's get into talking magic. Yeah. So, I love um, that game. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. So the first question I want to ask you, just because we have we have GP Vegas coming up, and yeah. it's going to be uh, Modern Masters 2015, which is your set. It is. Um, what is the most exciting thing you're able to tell us that we don't already know? Uh, is there anything? Uh, you there's just... no, there's nothing I can say. I don't work for Wizards anymore, so whatever. Well, on, you, whatever on a similar you... note, though, I mean, I do know this. You kind of caught Wizards' attention, and correct me if I'm wrong, but through cube design, correct? Yeah. You're kind yeah. of one of the first big na- big voices out on the internet for the cube format. So at least on that sense, there's a, a, a sense of approval that like the cre- one of the big people in cubing and someone that knows a lot about cubing was behind creating a format that is al- often most likened to cube. Yeah, I, de- I definitely appreciate hearing that. I don't know where the public considers me in terms of cube design at this point. I have plenty of people yell at me on Twitter about how I'm stupid for thinking signets are a bad idea. Oh, for the record, signets are a bad idea. <laughs> I, I, I think they're terrible, but I have opinions. I put them on display in the Cons of Tarkir update for the cube, and some people said I was stupid, and that's the internet, so who knows. Right. I, I do know that I have more professional magic design experience than most of these people, so I don't really want to call scoreboard or whatever. Like, I'm definitely up on dollars on these people in terms of my magic design results, but I don't know. I definitely was one of the louder voices early on. I think that gave me a unique angle to get noticed by Wizards, which was really good. One of the most important things if you want to end up inside that building is you have to give the people inside the building a reason to know who you are. And it doesn't really have to be a good reason by anyone else's judgment as long as it exists. Right. So plenty of people have gotten in just by being persistent or having a particular viewpoint. And then you get noticed, you start the conversation, and then they realize, okay, this is an overall productive human being who can create magic cards for us. And really that's all they want. They're they're less interested in the specific thing than they are just, can you help us make magic cards? Right. But you need to have a foot in the door to start the conversation. So you were noticed by from your website, right? Playmagicwithtomlapilly.com? Yeah, that that was where I was originally noticed. I was picked up by Star City in late 2007. I used that to get an interview with Rich Hagan about Cube at Pro Tour Valencia, and then an interview with Aaron Forsyth at the 2007 World Championships. You interviewed them, or they interviewed uh, you? Rich, Rich interviewed me at... Pro Tour Valencia. I interviewed Aaron for a Star City article at Worlds in 2007. And after that interview, I sent Aaron an email that was like, hey, it's been a lot of fun. 
Uh, thanks for doing that thing. The inter- the article is going to go up at this time at this link. By the way, do you have any jobs coming up? And he's like, <laughs> actually, you guess you can apply for this other thing. So I applied, and I assumed that there was no way I was getting it right away because I was just some dude. But it turned out that there was only one other person up for that that job at the time. Oh, interesting. And the week before my last phone interview... I top 16 to Grand Prix. Oh, nice. And apparently that was enough to convince the powers that be that maybe I had a clue of what was going on. And it's funny because I like my back was against the wall in that Grand Prix. That I had to win my last four rounds to top 16. What was the format, do you remember? It was Pro Tour, not Pro Tour. It was Grand Prix Philadelphia 2008, which was extended when it was seven years. Okay, yeah. And it, it was, was like a, Lorwin-ish It was era? Invasion to Morning Tide, yeah, okay. if I recall correctly, was the format there. A lot of like Chameleon Colossuses and Dendelian clicks riding around, Mutavaults uh, and things. Co- there was a guy with the breakout deck from that tournament was Chameleon Colossus triggering Talowisps, Talowisp yeah. getting Armadillo Cloak, yeah. which I don't think was actually good, but it top aided because people su- were surprised by it. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a weird jank, uh, like something that would kind of happen in modern kind of. Yeah, event. it was. It was definitely funny. People are looking at this like this can't be real, but there were there were strong players playing it, and they did they did fine. So, so let's back up for a quick second because yeah. you talked about getting involved and, and professional endeavors with Magic, but where did you start with Magic? I mean, did you how old were you when you started playing the game? I started playing the game in 1997. I guess that means I would have been 11 or 12. So like Tempest era, like yeah, right was, around there? Tempest was my first set. I was playing tournament chess for a while, but then I got bored of how static it was. A friend introduced me to Magic, and I was like, oh, they fixed it. And Interesting. I've basically just been playing Magic ever since. And did you start at a competitive level? I mean, because of your chess background, you were all about, you were Spike? I probably read about 20 hours of Dojo articles before I purchased my first card. So that, for those of you who are not around for the Dojo, this was a, this used to be essentially what Star City is now. All the strongest players would write tournament reports, they would write strategy articles. It was quite a thing at the time. Like, and no one was getting paid for this. It was just some guy who was putting all this stuff up on the internet. So if you wanted to read the World Championships Tournament report from John Finkel, he would just send it to this guy, Frank Kusumoto, who would put it up on the dojo. And so I read a lot of dojo strategy before I bought a single card. Mike so, Flores used to write a lot of that stuff, right? Flora. He did. I think that his early articles are shockingly groundbreaking for the time and very valuable for any new Magic player to read. Some of them are hard to find, but right. they, they give you such an incredible uh, platform to apply to the modern things that get written now. I believe Who's the Beatdown, which is his most famous article, was originally a Dojo article. It was, Yeah, which is a big deal. Yeah, and I've, I've read that article and the update a couple times. It's super interesting, and it's actually still very relevant. It's Yeah, it's fantastic. I think that Zvi's formulation of that theory is a little bit more useful, but Zvi would have never had the words to express it without Mike's two articles going on it. And the Zvi article was on Brain Burst way back in the day. Before it was was, TCG Player. Yeah, before it was TCG Player, and it was entitled Inevitability, I think. But that was a long time ago. It's a... It's lots of good old stuff, but that's I think we just, we totally just tangented like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's cool, though. You're talking about, like, that's, that's some real history. I mean, for the people who are listening to this and are thinking, you know, maybe you got in it at, uh, I don't know, Innistrad, or maybe you've been playing since Scars of Mirrodin or something, there's so much history to this game. And, there is. I mean, people like yourself that just have been around a long time, it's it's really exciting and interesting to look for that old stuff. So, so anyway, yeah. you, you were reading a lot of Dojo articles, and you got in, started playing competitively at Tempest. Do you remember when sort of like the switch flipped for you and you were like, this is a real thing. I'm really good at this. 
Oh God, that took a long time. Uh, <laughs> the biggest thing for me, I, I played mostly casually until about Odyssey. That was the first time I actually went to a pre-release, and at the time, going to a pre-release was a big deal. I lived totally. in I lived in Cincinnati. The closest pre-release was in Columbus. That's an hour and a half drive, but I was hooked after that tournament. the The one that really put the hooks into me was actually. Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't the pre-release that was my first tournament. It was the amateur championships oh. at Origins <laughs> in 2002. That was the first big tournament that I ever drove to. I played Blue Green Madness with Wonder in my deck because Judgment had just been released. Yeah. And you're probably thinking, of course you put Wonder in your Blue Green Madness deck. What the hell are you talking about? It's the World Championship deck. <laughs> uh, the weekend that Judgment is released, that is not as obvious to everyone. Right. And the majority of the Blue-Green Madness players in the room had one or two or zero wonders. I had four, which was probably one more than I should have had, but my creatures had flying a lot more often than my opponents did. <laughs> right. So, I, you know, I'm this kid, and I go to this tournament, and I just top four out of nowhere, and I've never done anything like this before. And it's just, I'm in. This This is just too awesome. So That's like one of the most competitive, awesome decks ever. That The Blue-Green Madness deck from Worlds that year, you yeah. can still pick that thing up, and it's so powerful. I mean, the interactions are insane. It's it's definitely a thing. Um, like, the good draws for that deck snowball like crazy, but for sure, for sure. So uh, all right, so you're you're going through and you, you're realizing you're good at it. And this is back when like PT or uh, uh, pre-releases were huge tournaments back then, right? Now yeah, there's two or three hundred people. Yeah, it was awesome. So you show up if you did well at a pre-release, it really felt like you had done something. Especially in Ohio, there were some scary players back in the day. Like half of the Magic R and D, not not half. That's many many Magic R and D people come from the Ohio and Pittsburgh area. Uh, Aaron Forsyth, Mark Globus, Sam Stoddard, Adam Prozac. Like, these wow. are all names that work for Wizards now. And these are the guys that I grew up playing Magic with, which it's probably not an accident that we're all in one place in Seattle for so long then. But there are some really strong Magic players there. It was a lot of fun. I don't. I wouldn't say that I was good until the Mirrodin block constructed season. That was when I started actually top-aiding PTQs. Like, oh, 3-ish, oh, 4-ish, right yeah. in the range. And that so was, you got hired in 07. So, so in that time, that 03, 04 to 07, yeah. what what was the big breakthrough moment for you where it was, that now I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to try to take this to a career level? Like, I'm good enough that I understand these cards. I can make these cards. What really happened was actually not playing Magic. It was in college where basically nothing I did that used my degree in the ways that you would expect that I tried during the summers was fun at all. So eventually I just gave up and realized if I don't figure out how to make games pay the bills, I'm just going to be a degenerate when I grow up. So that can't be that can't be okay. So I guess it's time to figure out what it takes to make magic cards. And then I just did that. So you're referred to in the fifth generation of, of designers by... Sure. Uh, that's, that's a Rosewater classification, right? The eras and all that. Yes. And you were on sort of in an article, you, you mentioned you wanted to make... More like if, if they never made a card like Cloud Chaser, Chaser Kestrel or uh, I think Windright Mage were the two cards you referenced, yeah. then you have done something right for Magic. And these are cards that stylistically, thematically, they just they're very random. That's I think what you mean probably. Yeah, I care a lot about overall packages of a card making sense. I was definitely the developer that cared the most about flavor things, and I, I eventually got into doing some actual Magic story stuff. I have several Uncharted Realms that I wrote, which is really cool to have contributed to that. But on just a card-by-card card level, I care a lot about stories making sense. Probably my least favorite card of all time is Riftmarked Knight. Yeah, right. Which is, what does it do? It's a weird what does it do? Card. Oh, God. Okay, so <laughs> it's this thing that if you suspend it, it has, fl it has flanking, 
and pro-black. <laughs> it's one of those stupid time spiral cards that just try to reference yeah. everything. And if, if you play it from suspend, you also get a black knight that has pro-white and flanking that goes with it. Here it is. Yeah, okay. Flanking, prote- it's uh, one, two, one and two white for a 2-2. Two, two. Flanking protection from black. Suspend three, one white, white. <laughs> and when you play it from suspend, you get a... Hasty flanking black two two knight with, with protection from white white yeah, just I, I have put that card in so many presentations about what terrible magic design is. It's, <laughs> it's like so overcomplicated. It's trying to do everything in the world. It doesn't have any flavor text yeah. at all. And well, it got to the point where <laughs> yeah, and it got to the point where people would just say like, well. Tom wouldn't like this card, and I didn't even have to say anything. Right. And it's not like I want to be in the way of anything, but I want people to be thinking, does this card make sense as a story? Sure. And if what that means is what they think to themselves is, well, Tom would not approve of this, but really they're acting for the good of magic in a way that I feel okay about, then I don't feel bad about that. Right, 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 right. I mean, think, being a person I think, you know, I'm getting in the way is a problem, but if, if you're actually doing something that's making magic better and you're known for that, that's always a benefit. Yeah. I'm okay with that. So having been involved in Modern Masters 1 and now Modern Masters 2 coming up, obviously the set that is most referenced with those is the Times Pro Block because there's mm-hmm. so many there's so many themes that come in both. Obviously, you guys wanted to design it a little in more of a clean way, I think, with the newer ones, with yeah. less just crap going on. Um, though Times Pro Block is my all-time favorite block, so for the record. But anyway, <laughs> that being said... Lots of people in Magic R&D love it too, by the way. Yeah, it's my all-time I, favorite. I would guess that the cards that you hate are some of Ben's favorites. <laughs> yeah. I, like, my cards, the cards I love from that set are so ridiculous. Like, Chrono's always, like, one of my favorite cards of all time. That one's at least being goofy for a reason. Yeah, it I is. think. <laughs> I love the flavor of that card. It's, yeah, that, it's, it's amazing. I, I like that card. Yeah. That, that one makes sense to me. It's like, it's a time amoeba thing, yeah. and that's what... that. If I told you that that was what a time amoeba did, like, yeah. okay, that that's just right, what those right. do. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So with having been involved in, in like, those sets and then also knowing how much of kind of a mistake with quotations Time Sparrow was, right. what was the process like designing these two new sets and, and knowing we're really going to be trying to basically mimic the same thing, using all these old themes, but we can't screw up like last time? It's about a target audience match thing where... If someone you know that by setting a price point that's higher than a normal booster pack, someone who wants a simple and easy to process experience, they're just not going to go to the seven or ten dollar booster pack. They're going to go to the four dollar booster pack, and so with that price barrier in mind, you can just go completely all out making the people who want an absurd experience happy. Right. And that's exactly what we did. Same. That's the same thing with Vintage Masters. Like. That's a kind of experience that you just can't get. You can't deliver correctly in a standard Magic Booster pack. Right. But it's clear that there's an audience for it, so this gives us a place to satisfy those people. Well, I mean, and, you know, Wizards tried forever having the core set be kind of a beginner thing, and then the other sets being, you know, these are the expert sets, and they used to even label them as expert. But in reality, you just... Like, when you go to a store, no store owner's like, oh, you should buy those sets. They're like, just buy the most recent one. Right. (laughs) And so... You can't have any standard legal set be too high of a barrier of entry to new players. Masters of Modern allows you to be different than that. Yes. Where even Conspiracy kind of did this to a certain extent where New World Order goes out the window. It doesn't matter anymore. Let's right. let's give you the complicated board state and gameplay that you're looking for. And right. you, you said it yourself. The pr- price points would lock people out, which well, is a benefit. 
I think it's interesting that when you look back to when when you guys first introduced M10, and it was New World Order, this is how we're going to approach the game. Duels of the Planeswalkers was shortly thereafter, right? It was around the same time. and But that's five years ago. So the approach to Magic then versus now, when the player base has grown so, I mean, enormously, right, in that five years. It's huge. And so many of the players that were introduced with M10 and Duels, now they're almost at this expert level. So now here you are designing, and you, by the way, designed or were one of the people behind Modern. You were one of the big developers of that format. Which we're going to talk about next. I kind of want to get into it. Yeah. yeah let's... Sort of a lead-in. Sure. Um, now that you look at Modern and where it is now, and these you're having to introduce additional you know, product to, to refill the market because there's so right. few cards out there for people. Um, how do you look at that player base? I mean, that that player base that started five years ago with all the intro... Because now the M10 sets are gone. The M10 right. sets are gone. There are still going to be new people at any given time. And whenever those new people show up, I think for the good of everyone involved, we want something that those people can handle. But you're right. There's still... Those people are being pushed up over time into more experienced... Bre- uh, I guess player brackets or however you want to put that. Sure. And, you know, those people will eventually be ready for something like a Modern Masters 2. And the the situation there, I think, is just basically always the same. Is like, as long as you price appropriately, the right people will find the right products, is is my theory about that. Do you you think five years later, now that there's a second uh, Modern Masters expansion coming out, you would deem the format a success based on that? I think it it would be completely insane to call modern not a success at this point. It's it's popular on every metric, and the problems that are being had now are I think all success problems. Sure. Which it doesn't mean they're not problems, but you'd rather have success problems than failure problems. And this is as I think we'll, we'll probably get into next right right now. Yeah, give us give us a start. How did it start? So. I'm talking about a format having success problems being a change, and the reason why I say that is that Aaron Forsyth is the director of Magic R&D. Something that he has cared a lot about for a while is that he thinks there should be, generally speaking, whenever you get tired of standard, it's better if there's a side dish of some sort that you can go play instead of standard. Standard is pretty great. We've figured out how to make that good, I think, and... It's it's not for everybody in terms of the pace it moves and also the space of potential gameplay. It's a little bit smaller than many other formats, but a lot of people like it. It's doing very it's very successful. It has variety versus depth, almost one could say. The depth is in different places. I think. Okay. I think the question is whether if the depth of do I play ultimate price or bioblight is interesting to you versus like do I play creatures. It's just, a, it's a different, you're asking right, different right. questions. The rabbit holes go in different directions, but it's successful. There hasn't always been a successful side dish. For a while, there was extended. At seven years, people, seven year extended was a thing for a while. People only really played that while PTQs made them play it. Right. Block constructed was a side dish for a while. People only played that when they were forced to play it. At GPs and Pro Grand Prix, Pro yeah. Tours. The smaller PTQs would make sense. Right. I think. There, there were other issues going on with it as well, I think, but generally speaking, there was never a successful side dish, and Aaron really wanted there to be a successful side dish. This happened at around the same time that there was a more concentrated call for a non-rotating format that was not legacy. Right. The reserved list has always been something of an issue. I don't really want to get into that because there are a lot of things now that I can't say that I know sure. about that. 
But suffice to say, while I was at Wizards, the plan was always to adhere to the reserve list. And because of that, Legacy was not really a starter in terms of making a larger non-rotating format. Right. Well, because, so, I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but there is a cap to how many people can play a format where you have to have four Force of Will and four Dual Lands, and you can't, and Dual Lands specifically are the yeah. pure barrier that you can't reprint. Legacy is almost like a country club these days. Like, to be in the club, you need a certain number of Dual Lands, and there aren't going to be any more of those. So right. the price of being in the country club is just only going to go up over time. It might not go up super fast, but it will go up. The The one thing, though, that Extended and Block, or that Extended did, and it actually did do this, was it gave real value to cards that had rotated out of standard. Right. Even if it wasn't getting a ton of play, you could look at the secondary market and you could see that there was a, a buoyancy effect from cards being an extended. Right, right, right. And people but, start calling... Or sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, I was going to say, you could kind of, if you look back at price histories on the Shocklands, you can really notice this, where... You know, there was, they were in standard, they were at X price, then they rotated out into the extended format, and they still kind of kept somewhat of what their price was, and then the new extended was invented, and they were cut out of that format, and then they dropped they drop. to $5 a pop, and the modern happened, and then they went up to 50 to $60 a pop. Right. Yeah. So the goal that we, we ended up with was come up with a format that makes cards that rotated out of standard still be worth having. And that doesn't rotate so people can feel safe about investing in something. And at that point, you're left with the question of where do you start? Which is a hilarious question <laughs> because any answer you come up with is arbitrary as hell. Right. There's no good reason to pick any one thing or another. Well, I mean, there's uh, it's not the one you guys picked, but I, I, there's an argument we made for the first set without the reserve list applied. Is I think that's what... Gavin Verhey? Gavin did? No, his, is, his is close to that, but I don't think close. To that. He, he went with Onslaught, which makes sense if you want the... Full set of Fetchlands. If you want the full set of Fetchlands, which is almost a more arbitrary desire than... The one that was the one chosen. that was actually yeah, chosen. Yeah, yeah. So we, I remember there was a point in the pit where me, Eric Lauer, and Aaron were just throwing around any random idea for a cutoff point that we could possibly think of and the reason for it. And we came up with a lot of really stupid ones. Well, what's what's the silliest one, and what's I mean, I guess the best one is the one that you chose. So, just give us uh, a ridiculous the, one. The, the <laughs> most the most ridiculous one that just really put a point on how absurd and arbitrary everything was was what about just the beginning of the first Ravnica? And it's like, why? It's like because I like that set. <laughs> like that, that was actually the end of that discussion. I mean, in some sense, Eric actually had more. Nuanced reasoning for that. Brian Schneider was the previous head developer before Eric had, took that role on. And we basically think that the original Ravnica is Schneider's best work. Uh, okay. that, that block is, I think, extremely well-developed, with the exception of a couple of slightly silly cards. But the standard format was great. Right, right. And so Eric's just like, hey, that was a well-executed set. Let's use that. But that was still fairly arbitrary. And... Then Aaron is just like, all right, I got a really dumb idea. How about when the card frame changed? And then we're all just kind of like... That sticks. <laughs> okay, that's like somehow the least arbitrary thing that anyone has said yet. It's, and, it, you know, it's, Scars and Mirrodin is relatively infamous. You either at this point were about to return to it or have just returned to it as right. the first real return to any set. It definitely makes sense. 
arbitrarily. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just arbitrary as hell, except that you can sort of justify it. And that was what we were looking for. We were looking for the ability to sort of justify what we picked. Uh, yeah. So you start, and I know the community cup was the thing that happened right at the right. beginning. Um, was were the results of the community cup kind of exactly what you guys were expecting on some level? They weren't exactly what we were expecting, but there were certainly some broken things that happened there that we w- we wanted the chance to see. If pros applied themselves, yeah. If people apply themselves, how stupid could this thing get? And the answer is pretty stupid. With like hypergenesis, and Luis got to play his elves deck with glimpse of nature, and right. The the eventual idea behind what we the initial ban list was that we wanted to essentially nip any problems that would have been PR nightmares in the bud. So. Was there a standard deck that was disgusting that people would play against, remember, and be depressed? Which is kind of what Fairies Jund <laughs> New Extended ended up right. being. It, exactly, and that's that's why Bitter Blossom ended up on the first ban list. Right. We didn't think it was great, but if somehow what wins the Modern Pro Tour is like Cyanabuna Bitter Blossom again, right. then people are just going to like the format less. So it's like get that out of here right now. Any ex- gross extended deck. We also wanted to get rid of so like Thopter, right. Thopter Foundry, and Sword of the Meek was something that we were not okay with being amazing Dark again. Depths, right? And then Sensei's Divining Top because that takes too damn long, right? <laughs> and uh, and then basically we just didn't want things to be too fast, and yeah, that right. was that was about it. But it was really more about sculpting, making sure that the PR negative outcomes didn't happen was a lot of what the first band the first was considerations about. were. Yeah, because. It really matters. These kind of things, if we're asking players to buy in, move their collections around for to make a new thing happen, we want the highest likelihood that those players will be paid off for making those moves. Right. Friction is pretty high in Paper Magic, and mo- moving is costly. We really wanted people to, to mo- have moved for something. Okay. And we thought that the best way to protect people's investments was to blow up the decks that would cause people to say I hate this format already. So after you guys kind of created it, how did you push the format through the rest of Wizards to kind of get everyone on board and really, you know, get it so it was ready to be public publicized? The answer to that question is probably less interesting than you're hoping. It was really the same process that it takes to push any new initiative out of R&D and through all of any large company. Okay. I spent a lot of time talking to organized play about like how are we going to use this thing in Pro Tours and Grand Prix? Are, are we going to let people use it at, at FNM? I talked to Brand about when or how are we going to deploy messaging about this, and I, I helped write some PR stuff that went into articles. I, I was the latest developments writer at the time, so I got to have a larger mouthpiece than normal for that. But really, I just had a lot of fairly boring corporate conversations with somewhat boring corporate role people. Sure. And it's not that the people involved are boring. It's just we're all doing, like, the same corporate things that happen at corporations. And that's totally fine. It was was interesting to see it go through. But to be the one pushing through what felt like this endless sea of friction as people are like, well, what about this? What about that? And occasionally I had to really remind myself that the reason why people are asking these questions is that they care about our players. They want to make sure we get the details right so that when we announce, people have all their questions answered so that people don't waste their time. And we're a lot of, of, like, the mistakes, and you could call them mistakes, made with new extended 
it, a lot of lessons learned there than applied towards the way modern was kind of pushed out publicly. In terms of the public relations side of things, I think yes. I okay. think Brandon and PR did a very reasonable job of yeah, handling yeah. that. Let, um, me, let me ask you really quickly. Um, obviously, the, the point of Magic Cards as a product, it's to sell packs. That's how the company stays alive. So when you come up with a format like modern, you guys, we're going to invest a lot of time and energy uh, developing and pushing this. Yeah. At the time, there is no modern masters. I mean, maybe you guys started concepting that already, but what is, like, when you're talking about these corporate conversations with corporate people, yeah. what are those conversations like when they're sort of saying to you, well, how are we going to sell product to make this format healthy? It, it wasn't so much how are we going to sell product, it's how are we going to tell people about this in a way that is honest and gets them excited. And with on the on the business side, it was like, what is the business upside to this? Right. And the answer is very clearly... We are making a format out of cards that are reprintable that we think people want to play. And I think on both counts, that turned out to be true. People want to play yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, the reason people are excited for Fetchlands, I mean, Fetchlands and are cool, but Fetchlands and Modern are awesome. Yeah. The basis of the format. They're pretty fantastic. And not to mention, I mean, there is this, something to be said for I am more willing to spend a lot of money on opening standard packs because I know sure. that some of these cards will be worth money in the long run. Right. And if I knew, if that wasn't true, I mean, that's the point of having a, a non-rotating yeah. format is if that wasn't true, I wouldn't spend as much money. After you kind of publicly announced it and, and Modern is now, you know, in the players' laps, yeah. how did Wizards, what kind of strategies did Wizards use? And I mean, we've seen some of it, but from their perspective and, and maybe things that we didn't even notice, how did they go about pushing this format publicly? And you said... You know, you talked a lot with branding about making sure this goes well. Well, what were right. those strategies you developed? So there were three things that I cared about. One was some high-level exposure to get things going in terms of people having a clue what the format looked like. So that's the Pro Tour, essentially, right. which we got to do right away, which was very, very fortunate that that was, <laughs> that was right there. I wanted there to be real reasons for people to play the format competitively because we've seen what pressure does to formats like extended or block that people don't even really want to play. If you kind of make them play it to get to the most prestigious stages, then they will. Yeah. So if you take a thing that theoretically people want to do and you say, you have to do this, they'll do it even more. It's, right, right. So PTQs, Grand Prix, things like that were really important to me. And the other was to make it easy to for this thing to take off at local stores. And that was... I think a little bit more of a struggle because it took a little while for FNMs to to be able to be modern, if I remember correctly. Right, it didn't happen right away. I think a year and six months later, I want to yeah. say. It eventually got there. I would have liked that to be a little bit faster, I think. Although it's tough because I've I've seen stores go to modern for all of their constructed and then have trouble moving standard product okay. and kind of shoot themselves a little bit in the foot there. So... Originally, I was on, like, can we say that people can do one modern tournament a month? Because right. I, I could see some amount of stores would, you know, screw up in that way, and maybe that isn't right for them. There was a store I played at in Spain that had moved to all modern, and, like, they were doing just fine. Like, their mm -hmm. people would, were drafting happily, and it was totally cool. But, you know, I, I've also seen stores kind of just crumple when they did that. Mm -hmm. So okay. It's all a question of, of management, and it, I think it's just a very high-skill play for a store to move in on Modern like that. Okay. But, so but it's I, the right kind of store. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you have the, to have a good sing, I, I feel like the more of a singles market you have, the better off you'll be in that sense. For and, sure. And possibly also like a draft environment because you can balance those two things versus standard and draft. Right. But yeah, I, that, I can see that being an issue for your story. It's like, hey, I like this modern format. We're just going to do that from now on. And right. not really thinking about the, the best way of going about it. Right. Because standard, as, as much as many people don't like it, it is what allows Wizards to keep being around and pushing all the parts that these people do like about right, magic. Right. So if the shark doesn't keep moving, the shark dies. And the more the shark gets to eat, the happier we all are. And right. I've now just completely destroyed this metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so, so it's... This is a pet shark that we like. Yeah, sure. <laughs> is this a, is this a tease for Modern Masters Two that you're giving us? Are you being cryptic right now? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, look out for hammerhead shark and great whale. What happens if I play it off suspend? Do I get a white a two two white knight or something? <laughs> uh, okay, so I want to ask really quickly that the original band list. Uh, versus like now, basically now when the BNR list comes out, I mean, to some degree, the pro community talks about it, you know, in the weeks coming up. So everybody kind of has a pretty good suspicion of what's going to happen. But it seems like one of the ways to reinvigorate the format is to aggressively ban or unban cards. You're um, right. Which is which is a weird thing that when you guys came up with the format, I would I was just I sort of looked and I was like, okay, this is the cards to avoid. Right. And probably there's not going to be that many bannings because in my lifetime it's like jace the mind sculptor gets banned or ravager right. gets banned but it's like i wasn't used to seeing cards get banned really so i think that's the cost of having a modern pro tour every year basically there's some, something that i feel like not a lot of people talk about when it comes to non-rotating formats really any format in some sense attention is a non-renewable resource to a set card pool Okay. So if I if I say here's a constructed format, these are the cards in it. The end. At the beginning it's great because we all we can all explore it and we're all learning new things. The more we all explore, the closer we get to just having seen everything, and when you get to the to the end of it, the product is kind of over. We haven't seen that happen to standard lately because at least in the past 6 months, things have been really really deep. It's we haven't hit the bottom because there's not enough time for the world to figure it all out. But when you have a format that doesn't rotate and you put a lot of people who are very smart and you have them work on it for a lot of money, they will get to the bottom of things eventually. And I think that's basically what has happened with Modern is because there's a Pro Tour, every year we're throwing $250,000 at people t at saying, you should figure this out because we'll pay you. And because of that, they've kind of gotten to the bottom of things over and over again. Which is why the bans happen. The, at that point, uh, Wizards gets to make a really unpleasant decision. And I, I can tell you it's unpleasant because I've been in the room several times when we've had this conversation, which is, do we run a boring Pro Tour or do we ban cards out of a lot of people's decks in stores? And so far, the answer has usually gone, we don't run a boring Pro Tour, we have to ban things. Legacy has somehow survived with b having just the same decks be good over and over again, and people still want to watch it. So it's very possible that run a boring Pro Tour would actually not be boring for for people in the way that we think it would be. But I do think it would be very boring for the pros if we didn't ban things, because they would just be playing the same decks that they played last time that they know are good. And it's possible that things are actually more broken at any of the points when bans happened sure. than the, any of the world thought 
that it was. And if you run another Pro Tour in those formats, maybe it does suck. But we've never run the sample size. Right. And, I mean, there's an argument. I mean, I guess on both sides of that coin, there's an argument you made that, yes, for the pros, it would be boring. But, you know, in other professional watching activities of yeah. people competing, there is something to be said, like, oh, that guy has his signature thing that he does. And even pros do that. I mean, LSV will play a giant blue spell if he can. Right. And, you know, Kibler will play green cards if he has the ability to. Right. And... You know, that happens in theme, but, like, I don't know, and I, I've never really talked about this, I, I, this is an interesting point, but, like, I don't know how bad it would be to see, you know, these pros have their signature deck in one of the formats every right. year, and just, like, that's the logo they have blazoned on their shirt, is yeah, I am the elf combo deck player, I am sure. the splinter twin player. Because the thing that was really frustrating to me was that one of the last things I did when I was in Magic R&D was I made a big push to get the modern pro tour killed. Okay. So... People might be angry at me about this. <laughs> and then but, they killed it, and then they brought right. it back. So, and, and I succeeded, but then, then it didn't work. So my theory about this is that if you're going to run a modern Pro Tour, that is going to accelerate the rate at which people's cards are going to get banned. And I wanted this format to be for the people who really wanted to play it, which to me is people in stores, people in lower-level places. When I played at San... I played side events at Grand Prix San Jose somewhat recently... And I was I played twenty rounds of modern side events. For, I played four or five round events, and it just really struck me how sort of tuned in, but also not tuned in. A lot of the audience was these people were just playing the decks that they had, and they wanted to trust that their cards were safe and that they could come play these things whenever they wanted to. And there were some people playing some weird stuff, like I was playing Affinity and I lost to the Infinite Time Walk deck. Right, with I like deck. <laughs> you know the. Yeah, he's he's just like flashes in dictative crucifix and then takes a billion turns and he had like brand new delve time walk in his deck which was actually pretty good and I was one turn too slow to kill him with affinity and it was awful because it took like 15 minutes for him to actually put me away or whatever. Played against this person. Yeah. So so like I didn't enjoy that but like that guy he just really wants to feel safe, I think. And over and over and over near me I heard people say yeah, well, this is the thing I had left when they killed my birthing pods. And it's like, I don't want your birthing pods to get killed. Right, like, right. I, I want your birthing pods to be safe. And that was why I pushed so hard with the full knowledge of the two rotations a year system for standard to say standard's going to be fine. Yeah. Let's just do all standard. The pros are going to be happier. We'll show off the new sets better. And we'll protect everyone's investment in modern cards. Right. So... I feel like to get this conversation anywhere new, what we need to get in some kind of larger public setting for the world to agree on is we are willing to watch a modern Pro Tour that looks the same year over year, and we don't care if it's the same decks. We just want to see those decks, and we want to trust that our cards will be safe, and we're okay with that. Well, that brings to, I mean, a really interesting point, because this is something we've talked to a couple guys about now. I think we talked to Chaz and Sperling about this recently, and this is just the idea that there's a huge difference between the people playing it and the people watching it. So the viewership is really high. Yes. It doesn't, and the viewership, I, I have a feeling the viewership is going to be really high, irregardless of the bands. I think the viewership will be higher and higher, because the cards are awesome. And yeah, It is a format that, like, when it comes to standard, a lot of standard... No matter how fun it may be to play and variety it is, it is a lot of just attacking into each other or killing everything the other person plays. At least Modern has 
every deck playing is like, oh, what is that going to do? <laughs> so you have to ask yourself the question, you know, there was a, a st- three articles that got written all at once about what's wrong with Modern. I think like a month and a half ago. Paula yeah. wrote one. I think Ari Lax wrote one. And and Sperling wrote third. And wrote Sperling third. wrote third. And we had him on that week to talk about it. And they all suggested different things. I think one of Paulo's suggestions was increase the sideboard to 20 cards. Now, <laughs> now I, I just silently shook my head. I realize yeah. you don't actually get to see that. <laughs> so my question is, if we are, as a group mind here, like don't ban cards because it ruins people's day, and it's probably fine if you don't ban them because as long as you keep printing new powerful things... I mean, granted, I should say, if you're going to ban cards, ban commons that are easy to get. Well, I'd say, if you're going to ban cards, cruise. ban new cards, because they... And I'm not going to say do that, but if a card comes out and it's just too powerful because Wizards don't have the time to test yeah. it, then fine. That yeah. makes sense to get rid of it. But it doesn't make sense to... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I think we're all... So, what I'm saying well, is... I, I actually wanted to, to jump on something you said. Oh, yeah, please. You, you know, you said don't ban com- or ban commons if you have to. How many people bought Steam Vents and, uh, you know... And scalding tarns because of treasure cruise, but their scal- but their scalding tarns <laughs> and steam vents are not worth any less money. Really, ultimately, long term in the format because they're format staples. Just maybe, because that card's gone, maybe not. But I mean, imagine if uh, I, I see what your point. Is. Your point is that when you, even though you ban a common that kills a strategy, the other cards that were buoyed because that strategy was popular still get hurt. How about this? Twice. I'll I'll just. I'll just take the the most painless card out of the Amulet Bloom deck. I'll ban Summer Bloom. Okay. That's like two or three bucks, right? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, well, right. And then, like, Kaboom, Primeval Titan, (laughs) like, just... A lot of cards get sure, get sure. really crushed when that happens, and well, how, like, how much are your eggs decks worth right now? Everyone yeah. on the internet. Sure, <laughs> I, I I think that I think any ban is just really high cost, even if it's of a card that might not look like it's worth a ton of money. So well, we'll go we'll go forward with the 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 finish. My statement was: we'll go forward yeah. on the assumption that we're comfortable watching a pro tour with decks that are good. We don't need those cards banned. If that's the case. Are we willing to experiment with sort of the um, the systematic context of of the format? Things like increasing a sideboard or changing the rules almost in some ways to favor the format without having to get rid of cards. I think I think the thing you look at is legacy doesn't have banning as much as modern does, and it somehow survives in both being fun to watch, popular to play, and very diverse. There's not a legacy pro tour though. I bet True. if I bet if you had a legacy pro tour, we would learn some terrible, terrible truths about that format <laughs> that we don't want to know. Well, I guess the other side of the point though is, is if you look at the crap. GP before the bannings, there were eight different decks in that GP top eight, which has happened in modern maybe twice. Versus after the pro tour, where there are three of the same deck, two of the other one in the top sixteen, Splinter Twin wins two a pro tour and a GP two days in a row or two weeks sure. in a row, like. Having high-powered cards, and I'm not saying that format was was a good format. I sure. do think there were like if you look at the top 16, you then see 50 blue-red Delver decks. Yep. But n- having p- high-power level cards isn't necessarily make a undiverse format as long as you have ones that play off of each other. There was game of Treasure Cruise versus Birthing Pod. Yeah. That game is gone now, and now we're back to you know mid-range decks just being the best control deck in the format, and no one playing anything else. I mean, but. Okay, so so you're when you talked about the initial ban list and you said top takes too long. Yeah. Well, that's the argument for banning eggs. I mean, that's the reason yeah. eggs gets banned. So yeah. if you're going to ban something, that's the reason that makes more sense. Yeah, I feel absolutely no remorse about having banned uh, the eggs deck. Right, but it's like banning birthing pod. The birthing pod shuffles a lot. I think that's an, an under, yeah. underrated aspect of the problem with that card. Is like that is a lot of tutoring. So 
I mean, Survival of the Fittest had to go from Legacy eventually because it was just, that's well, a lot but, of tutors. And... Right. But also at that point, there were three good decks in the format and that was it. And they all played the card in sure. Vengevine. So, I mean, I guess my point, and a lot of people have been saying this, and I'm not as extremist as some people because I don't think unbanning Jace is good for the format at all for right. at least 10 different reasons. Right. But I do think because of the Pro Tour, we've had now four years where card after card was banned, more to mix it up. And if you kind of did a pro tour and then slowly started undoing that and slowly just became okay with LSV is going to play the same, all these players are going to play the same decks and right. that's fine. Cause people will then like, I guess it, on the other side, there's probably a benefit to some of this where I see LSV is playing Brian Kibler. And I know that for the last three modern pro tours, they play the same deck. Now I don't have to like look at the tiny screen, which is a problem with viewing magic in general. Sure. I can know like, okay, I like walking into this, know what's going on to a certain extent, which could be a benefit. You know, when you're walking into a Clipper game that there's going to be Lob City going on the whole time. Sure. For me, it's just all about what can, what can we do to serve the low level player who wants to not have standard run away from them? And how can we make that person feel safe about playing Magic? And, you know, if if the Pro Tour coverage can survive being similar year over year, which I think it probably can, if as long as the, the format can survive that, that kind of less uncertainty over time, I'd rather be in that world. And I'm only starting to feel that from a player side because I, uh, I played in Infect in Vancouver. I didn't really have a great time. I should have played Splinter Twin for sure. And I'm starting to learn Splinter Twin in anticipation of the modern PTQ or PPTQ season that's coming up. And also I'm sure there will be Grand Prix at some point. And I'm starting I think to feel three. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm starting to feel some attachment to the Splinter Twin deck. And it's not really monetary attachment for me because I have a but lot of magic cards. Sizable collection, right? Like if they if they ban Splinter Twin I'll be able to build whatever other deck I want to play. Right. Uh, I, I mean, but, I had Birthing Pod built when it banded. I was like, well, I guess I'll play with the Scape Ship deck I already have built. It wasn't a big... Right. It's not monetary, it's, but it was more like, oh, I just spent a year learning and attaching exactly. myself to playing this play style. Right. Now, I'm kind of like, okay, now I have to learn how to put seven lands in play. <laughs> For the record, yeah. I don't know if you guys saw the Congregation at Dawn uh, collected company version of that deck that got played, which is yep. awesome. It's and if cool. we had more time, we would talk about it. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I'm with you. So you're, you're getting attached to Splinter Twin. I don't think that'll ever get banned because it feels like it's the sort of, like, staple. It represents so much about the format, right? It it might. I I could see anything happening. So I will say, if someone... I could, If I put myself in Eric Lauer's shoes and someone says, hey, we're worried about the, that the Pro Tour is going to be boring, what do you do? My mental model of Eric is that he would be depressed for a couple of days... And then he would come out of the tank with ban Splinter Twin, ban uh, Summer Bloom. <laughs> I, I think that's what he would come out of the tank with. Okay. And I think that's a reasonable conclusion if the coverage people come to you and say, what do I need to do to create a fresh viewing experience for this modern Pro Tour? That's a reasonable answer. Right. And I don't like that that's the answer because yeah. I just got my four Russian Summer Blooms that are sweet. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, okay, where do I find a modern FNM so I can play with these damn things at some point before, like, they get blown up? Like, I don't know that that's actually what's going to happen. I'm not in the building anymore. Right. But, and, you know, the Summer Blooms were, like, the only thing I was missing from the deck somehow. But, like, 
And now do I even feel good about like taking to a, a modern FNM like Well that deck is sweet. I mean like and yeah, one of the reasons is awesome. like, it's it's cool it's but it's great to watch it, it, and it kind of has a lot of the cool things that eggs did without any of the drawbacks of like I'm going to do something that's insane and it, yeah. but I'm also not going to take three hours to do so. It, it does all the things that Eggs did, but it plays Primeval Titan and Telerio West. Like, <laughs> well, the, the best part about my copy of it is I have a lot of foreign cards because those were easier to get when I was at Wizards than English cards somehow. So I'm like, Japanese amulets, here's my like Russian bounce land and I'll play yeah. Russian summer bloom and my <laughs> Spanish Primeval Titan and these like these poor people at local stores, if they don't know all these cards, and they're your just translator is just sitting there explaining. Yeah. They're just gonna be like, You're you're cheating me. Like yeah, magic cards don't do this. And you're you're like, lying. To, you're like, I used to work for wizards, trust me. Yeah, it, it's like like what kind of awful shark am I at that point? But but yeah, like that that's I, I don't want my totally awesome Russian summer blooms to go anywhere. And it, I, so, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm just in this weird emotional place now that I never had been before. It was always abstract for me, but now it's now it's real. Right, right. So. You're now actually having to deal with. Well, that's what I, I agree with you. I think a boring, and I'm putting quotation marks um, yeah. for all those people on the internet that can't see me right now, is a boring pro tour is not a thing. I think the fact that, and it, I, I do think, yes, Legacy could be solved more than it is, but Star Sea Games was putting on tournaments every weekend, and obviously they're not the same level of pro players, but the difference between Legacy and Modern is there's 30 Tier 1 decks, or there's 20 Tier 1 decks. And Modern, there's 10 right now, maybe 20 if you really want to stretch that. I think it depends on what the definition is. Like True. I. Yeah. Personally, I'm I've got the list of modern decks I would play in a Grand Prix down to five, and I think the other ones are just a tick or two down. Okay. It depends on how you yeah, define yeah, yeah. tiers, though, because like I've heard like tier one and tier one point five, and like all all I have and keep around in my head is like tier one is things I would play, okay, and then see, see, other for, things. Well, I guess what I'm so, saying is tier one or tier one point five, maybe that sure. together are things that have top aided within the last year. Sure. Or at least within the format that exists. And then maybe looking at the top 16 right now because we're in a format that only has had two major tournaments really played out. Sure. But, I mean, when you look at formats of the past, like, I, I almost, when the bands came out, I was sad. Not even because Birthing Pod was banned, but, like, that had Merfolk, Birthing Pod, uh, Delver, Affinity, and, like, two other decks that not, like, when you have a diverse top eight, why is it broken at that point? Other than the fact that the community was very vocal about Red Delver is a problem. It was my my personal opinion of that was that Treasure Cruise was completely insane. I I played in played in some local tournaments. I just felt like I was cheating. Right. And oh no, 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 it was a completely unfair. Card. And that's I don't think anyone disagreed. And that was a card similar kind of Deathrite Shaman left the format. No one was like, oh, I'm, I, man, I want that to stick around. It was like, okay, yeah, that made sense. <laughs> I mean, look, there's two things at play here. A consistency of results from top level players playing similar decks is as much a function of the quality of the deck as it is that the best players in the world have chosen to play those decks. So of course that those decks are going to show up because you have 30 of the best players in the world playing those decks. I don't think it means that those decks are, are that much pound for pound better than the, all the other ones. Yeah. Well, the other side is diversity-wise, if we're looking at diversity of a format, one of the reasons that these formats, especially Pro Tours, theoretically are less diverse is because of the team system. And if all of them are coming into a new format, they're like, oh, I don't know what to play. Well, Jund and, and our Green Black has just always been good, and it 
just got slightly better because it's like worst opponent is gone, then all of them are going to play it. And sure. the other side is like, well, Splinter Wind Twin just kills people, and I don't really have to. I have to think about it, but I don't have to really think about it because worst case scenario, I just combo out and win, and I'll get some free wins that way. So like those are kind of the decision processes that I get made. But then if you have the boring Pro Tour where these different players, instead of like spending two weeks before Pro Tour trying to figure out what's going right. on, have three years of playing a deck, they're going to stick to that deck, which then eventually will just lead to natural diversity because these players are like, well, I'm going to play... Ari Lax has played the exact same modern deck, but that might be different because he's found the style he likes. Well, at that point, I think you have to ask, is this diversity and... Consi it's funny, you've brought up a really good point. Uh, diversity and consistency can definitely happen at the same time. And I think that's that's something that has been underappreciated potentially inside Wizards, where these are all the same decks, but there are a lot of them, and that can be pretty cool. The question is, are these decks that are the same over and over again, of which there are many, are they fun? And do the do the matches that happen... Are they fun to watch? Are they fun to watch? Are they fun to play? Right. And my issue with Modern right now is I think that fewer than is optimal of the matches that I play in Modern are fun to play. Many of them are about weird things. They're about sideboard cards. They're about, you know, d did I do my crazy thing before you did your crazy thing? And there wasn't a lot of interaction in between. Part of that is a function of the deck that you choose to play, I think. I played Infect at the Grand Prix in Vancouver, and that was definitely signing up for some stupid run-past-each-other games of Magic. Right, it's a who can kill the other person first. Not all of them are, are like that. There are many games with Infect where you sit there and plink away at your opponent holding a bunch of cards, but no one can do anything. And those those get, games are tense, fun, interesting. They're great. But there are also lots of stupid ones. I'm playing Splinter Twin lately, like I mentioned, and that is, that's signing up for much more interesting games. And you can also si sort of tune how interesting you want your games to be based on what kind of cards you play in your deck. Uh, Eugene Huang is a local guy who helped me some with Splinter Twin. He's been on the podcast been, before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he played Blood Moon's main deck in his Splinter Twin deck at Vancouver. I am not playing Blood Moon. I'm playing Grim Lavamancer. Because of that, I play more interesting games on average in game one than he does because he has a card that's either close to win the game on the spot or, or blank, draw. and I have this interesting interactive one-drop that lets me do lots of tricky stuff. So... I think it's better. I don't know it's better, but, but you might I know be choosing I, it because you're going to enjoy your tournament. I know I like it more. And at lo at lower level events, I think you're more likely to meet a guy who just decided to play a bunch of plains or mountains as opposed to like what people would consider a real deck. Right. So I'd rather have the Grim Lavamancer if I'm playing in a PPTQ than the Blood Moons. I'll sideboard the Blood Moons. I want them around, but I don't want to draw those against Leon and Arbiter guy. Right, so, or even, like, Affinity, which is pretty common in the Southern California region, where, like, yes, Blood Moon turns off their man lands, but it also, they can run Blood Moon, so they're, they're pretty they're adept okay. at running through it. They'll, they'll be all right. All their spells are colorless. <laughs> so on the note of uh, lower-level tournaments, or quotations yeah. lower-level, uh, some news broke this week about the, the new change, the update yes. to the pre-TQ system, uh, which is, for those of you, we've talked about it on here before, but it's the new uh, local PTQ, yeah, pre-PTQ 
30 free to 50 TQ events usually. that then if you win, you go to a regional PTQ that then gets you on the Pro Tour. That you get a sweet Liliana promo for. Um, yes, you do. <laughs> so, I want uh, one of those. I'm, I'm pretty tilted that I'm not qualified for the first regional PTQ because I wanted the Liliana. <laughs> Super cool. So I read this news this morning, and I was pretty ecstatic. I was really disappointed. We had a long conversation a few months ago on one of these about this system, and I had my complaints. But one of the major ones was I was bummed out that – I really wasn't going to have a chance to play modern. Yeah, uh, consistently. At, consistently it, it, at, at an you, event that I wanted to play. Right. The I, chances of playing modern were: did the one store that's playing modern schedule happen to be a weekend that I might be available? Possibly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so this is great because it's a season again, like it's always been, to play the format that I want to play, which means. Hello. You're fine. Okay. Sorry. I, I saw the mute button with a red light, and I was like, oh, Jesus. That might, that, you're good. I would okay. notice. <laughs> okay. There's little lovely things that if you right. weren't making it, I would, you would very say. quickly. Sorry, I just yeah. totally blew Don't that up. <laughs> so this is great for me because I get to play a format that I want to play for an entire season. Yeah. Um, and for me, a lot of magic, and I've said this before, yes, I would love to play on a pro tour, and it would be fantastic to win or top eight a grand for you. These are things I haven't done before. But for me, ultimately, the most rewarding thing is playing in a competitive environment, playing in an environment that I feel challenged, that I feel yeah. like the players I'm playing against are good, that if I win, I feel like I've accomplished something, and usually the person I'm winning against respects the fact that I beat them. Like, you played well kind of a thing. Sure. I mean, on, on my end, with this decision, one of the things I really fell in love with, the, even the PTQ system back in the day, was the idea of seasons. Yes. It's something that I, like, immediately walked into, and I'm like, oh, that's a legitimacy to this that, like, I didn't really even think was possible, and I get to focus on something. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. I don't have to be broad. I'm just going to work on this. Okay, the season's done. Okay, next <laughs> new plan. Yeah. Let's jump on that. And it definitely allowed you to kind of be able to focus. And it, it made you feel like you were actually doing something professionally. Yeah. Which is definitely something that is shouldn't be overlooked. I agree with everything you guys just said. I'm really excited about this. Not specifically because I'm a modern guy. Like... At this point, I'm just shoved in and on playing a ton of Magic. I'll do whatever they tell me to do because so far they have not led me astray. But I love being able to focus like you're right. talking about. So for me, this is just huge news. And, you know, I'll get to really invest in something new. And it's it's a new problem to solve. And over many weekends, I will see that investment rewarded in terms of the experiences that I'm going to have. All right, so that's it for today. Uh, I want to shout out a big thank you to Tom LaPelli uh, for coming on this week. Uh, that To follow him on Twitter, it's at Tom LaPelli Magic. Um, that is spelled L-A-P-I-L-L-E. Uh, as always, please follow us on Twitter as well. That's the, at the MMCast. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. I'll mention it now. If you tweet at us, we will tweet back at you as you're listening. So tweet right now and tell us what you thought about the episode. Uh, follow me at Kess Wiley. Follow Ben at Ben Bateman Media. Um, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It's really important the more subscribers we get there. Also, we're slowly going to start releasing uh, videos of each of the podcasts each week on our YouTube channel, which is the Top Decking YouTube channel. Also, it's uh, backslash Webisodes Network on YouTube. Um, one, as always, we also have a question for you guys. This question is, so now that the PTQ, pre-TQ system is going to be a modern season, what are you guys playing? I want to know what decks you guys play. And we can kind of follow up, and maybe we'll do some deck techs on ones that we found interesting that you guys shout out to us. Um, always important, please go check out our sister podcast at The Command Zone. They do really great content. Their uh, Twitter is at The Command Cast. Uh, they're on rocketjump.com as well. 
And last but not least, uh, this episode is actually sponsored for the first time by uh, the guys at Wizard Foundry for the Grimoire. Uh, we argued with them and twisted their arm, and they actually gave us a cool code uh, so that you guys can get 10% off any Grimoire product if you put it in on their website. Uh, the code lasts for the rest of the month. It is MMCAST, M-M-C-A-S-T. Put that in. Get yourself a cool book box. Exactly what it is. It holds a bunch of cards. They're really sweet. You feel like an old-timey wizard mage when you open up your Magic Gathering box deck box. It's awesome. Uh, once again, thanks to Tom, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator. <laughs>